of betting podcast today i'm joined by adam blanco adam thank you very much for coming on before we get into this episode make sure you follow us on twitter at betting pod and check out the website businessofbetting.com. guest suggestions are much appreciated this podcast is proudly sponsored by betfair proprietary limited betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the northern territory of australia residents of australia can join betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Adam Blanco. Adam, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, pleasure, Jake. Thanks for having me on. So, Adam, what was your first foray into betting? Um, so, I'm one of those that was that was kind of born into it, I suppose. The, the family tree sort of scattered with with bookmakers and and old tales of the SP, if you like. But probably the the most direct influence of mine was was my old man who who worked with um he's a bookmaker himself, worked with Colin Tidy at, at City Index and and Con Cafetaris at, at Sport Odds and, and a few other. You know, I was I suppose exposed to some some pretty sharp people. He had a, a team around in there that were. You know, there's some pretty good betting minds there. So from a young age, I was I was sort of exposed to to some pretty smart betting folk, and and I suppose that was that was where I was sort of always destined to head. So were you on course with your old man, or what was a typical sort of weekend in your teenage years? No, so Dad was um, probably at the the start of the sort of corporate game, if you like. So he was he was in an office at the at the race course at Canberra. So I'd go out there a little bit, sort of thing, but it was it wasn't sort of. Um, it wasn't a board at the track, if you like. It was it was the start of mostly phones back then, but it was the start of that sort of phones and, and heading towards online. So the game was was probably changing, but yeah, it was a you know I got out there a, a little bit and, and obviously you know speak to the old man about these things all, all the sort of all the time. So I had that sort of little introduction to, to betting from a young age. Dad was also my um my personal bookmaker in in the younger years there, fifty cents <laughs> the place punter with with the old man. So. He took plenty of my action back in the day as well. So, yeah, I was a, an early ager, if you like, and then sort of always heading down that path. I hope he was giving you 100% markets. Yeah, yeah, and I never had to pay, which was, <laughs> which was handy. So I was on a good wicket there. What was most enjoyable back then for you? Did you and did you just like having a you know a place bet here and there, or did you like reading the form guide and, and trying to pick out the right factors, or was it pretty simplified for you in the early stages? Yeah, I suppose. As, I mean, as a kid, it, it's certainly more about. I mean, horse racing's it's more the aesthetics of it all, I, I suppose, and, and just sort of sitting on the couch with with dad having a bet and a punt and, and a bit of fun. So that was. I think that's probably how a lot of people sort of get into it. I didn't sort of get serious about it for for quite a while. So I ended up sort of, you know, I was sporting sport footy on the weekends and and school and what have you, and and just drifting along. I ended up working in in the bank and heading down the, the path of a, a life of finance I'd, I'd probably be sitting in front of a, a royal commission had I not sort of stumbled into a, a job at a small corporate myself which is uh, Portland Bet which is a Canberra race course as well so I stumbled into that it was only a, a small little little corporate bookmaker but again there were some smart people there and, and I learned a lot and, and there were some um, you know I probably learned a little bit about what not to do as well but because as I said it was a, a small sort of joint it was um very hands-on so from a you know straight away I was sort of thrown in the deep end a little bit there you sort of 
I was working nights and, and managing books on um, European soccer and, and in US sports. I was probably hugely underqualified, but got to learn on the job. So that was probably a, a little bit of a fast track into the betting world as well. What did you learn most there? Were you handicapping horses or were you just doing what a, a young you know, employee of a, a relatively small bookmaker were doing, which is probably everything, I'm guessing? Yeah, it was small. So it was sort of everyone sort of to the tool sort of thing and, and having a go. And yeah, you know, as I was, horse racing, I was probably more sport at that point, to be honest. And, you know, I still had a, an interest in the horses, but it had never grown beyond, um, you know, the, the days of just having a punt on the horses on a Saturday sort of thing and, and betting the carnivals, that sort of thing. So, you know, I was, I was probably more sport at that point, but I was working nights, as I said, a lot of European soccer and, and stuff like that. And, and I think it was working those nights, a lot of little long, cold hours in, in the middle of July in Canberra. And I sort of started watching, um, sort of fell in love a little bit with the English and French racing and through the night there and then started trying to find winners. And, and that's probably where I started to drift to, and maybe a little bit away from sport and sort of really get sort of stuck into the horses. Did you have a mentor or a teacher in terms of handicapping and, and looking into, I guess, European horse racing? There probably wasn't a lot of people around to sort of guide you through that. No, I was, I was on the fly a, a little bit. I always had dad, but um, so from there, I suppose the working those nights became fairly tiresome and, and the lifestyles are, you know, a little bit rough around the edges. So I ended up getting in touch with, with Gary Crisp at, at Racing in Sports and, and just mentioning that, you know, I was using the, I was using, I'd found Racing in Sports online and, and was using the website so i just got in touch with him and said look I'm, I'm using the website i'm a fan if you like and and i'd be interested in in doing a little bit of work for you guys because i knew they were in canberra so i got an interview there with with gary and, and that was probably where you know i was i probably had no idea there gary still reminds me that i i had no idea at that point in time but i walked in the door and then that sort of started off on the on the journey now that you know a lot more, what are the, the core differences between European horse racing and Australian horse racing? If you want to make money at either, is there stark differences or is it, you know, the same core principles apply, you've just got to figure out the nuance? Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think there's um I don't think there's a huge difference. I think it's I think I'd I probably have some sort of advantage in in having a an idea about the English and French racing and an idea about the Australian racing and being able to take those ideas across to so have a bit of a an Australian look at, at an English race and an English look at an Australian race probably doesn't hurt but at the same time I couldn't claim to have any silver bullet there it's it's still just you know A to B I, I suppose it's not there's, there's slight differences as you say there's nuance but I don't think there's probably any sort of there's no trick to it if you like okay so if I mean we've seen some Aussie sprinters go over there and just go straight to the lead and, and win essentially or sit right on the pace is it different if they're coming from behind? Do they have to adjust to different tempo and you know different riding styles and things like that, even different training styles? Yeah, well, there's certainly different training styles, but I think that sort of... I mean, we've obviously had a lot of success with, with our sprinters over there, and that's that's generally what we're good at, and and we stack up really well over there. I think it's true that we are you know muscle-twitch athletes down here, and then we go really quickly, but... Over there, it's it's probably a little bit more sedate at the, at the very beginning, and they slowly ramp it on up. Whereas here, we sort of scramble out of the gates, take a quick hold, get a get a breather, and then blast home. Whereas over there, it's sort of it's a slow build. They're they're off for home. They're at their top a lot further from the winning post than we are here. So that's probably a a slight difference. But our horses have tended to adapt to it pretty well. I think. I think in the end, it's it's a bit of a case of, of I think more races over there are probably won by the the best horse, and over here maybe tactics and and jockey ship plays a little bit more of a role, but again, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule thing. I think it's, as you said before, just a little bit of nuance. 
So how would you grade the internationals coming for the Melbourne Cup? Obviously, distance race, if the if the idea is that they're probably a, a stronger animal over two miles. In general, do you think they've underachieved? I suppose so. They're probably only one or two wins away from being overachievers, though. It's it's still, I mean, it's been going since 1993 hasn't it so there's there's been a lot of them but it's still a relatively small sample size i suppose so i don't think you know i I certainly don't have any issue i'm not thinking that you know you shouldn't be backing english horses in a melbourne cup or or anything like that i think they'll they'll find their they'll find their turn and they, they may well find it this year they've got they've got a pretty strong team coming coming this year i think and and i you know the vibes around australia are all pretty forlorn at the at the moment i don't think we think we have a a huge defence for it. So, you know, the English will, will get their turn. I, I don't think they've missed. Maybe they've underachieved slightly, but it would only be very slight. So what are the core tenets of your handicapping? If you don't mind just taking us through some of the, the main components that you rely on to, to grade a horse or a race or a race day. Yeah, so ratings are, are my go, and that's time form ratings is, is sort of the, the most prominent, if you, if you like. So we, we produce those at, at racing and sports. We, it's basically taking, a you know, all the the key variables we can and, and everything, you know, basically we want to measure all the objective variables and, and sort of condense them down into to one key number. So, um, you know, I don't think there's, again, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm not thinking there's a silver bullet here or that we have a, a certain trick. I, I don't think there's anything that, that we're doing that's, that other people aren't doing, but it's maybe more a case of just, just having the, the strong database behind us. And, and given that, we're, we're able to measure horses you know, using the same consistent methods across across those borders. So when you talk about international racing and, and things, we're sort of measuring those horses in the same database and, and using sort of uniformed data to, to measure those horses. So I suppose that's probably the the racing and sports edge, if you like. So one example might be time. If if the Aussie races are get out of the gate, scramble, find a position, settle for a you know, four, six, eight hundred meters and then sprint home and the the English racing might be cruising speed and then from the 1,000 start sort of accelerating all the way. Does the time variance have any impact on that? Is it is it meaningful? Is it one or two seconds either way or a half a second either way, which can be a number of lengths that you have to account for? Yeah, I think there, there are differences in, in assessing time. Well, they're not differences in assessing time, but I suppose I think there are more races in the UK that are genuinely run. There's those big field handicaps where it's, it's almost rare for them not to be truly run, whereas, whereas here we obviously we obviously have a lot of races that that are not so truly run. I would think it's that here would be something like maybe a third, or maybe even a little bit less than a third of races that are are really genuinely run. And, and in the UK, that might be up more around forty percent, a little bit more than that even. So maybe overall time is is more important in the UK given that, or maybe overall time can be taken a bit more literally in the UK given that. Um, and that's where sectional times here, obviously sectional time analysis is is big in, in Australia. And I think that's probably the reason because tempo obviously is, is such a key to, to overall time. And and I think here we've, we're probably a little bit more vulnerable to that because of that racing style. What about subjective variables? Do you delve into that at all? Um, I try not, not necessarily in a, in a rate. I mean, like everyone, I'm, I'm sort of... I'm sort of having a guess when it comes to the subjectives, but try not to put them so much into a into a rating. As I said, you want to you want your ratings to be as objective as possible, and, and you want them to represent to be a really true representation of the the form or the the level of performance of the horse. So the subjective stuff probably comes later. So I think you need that consistent base, and then you can add a little bit of 
flair on top of that. That probably comes more in the in pre-race and and sort of projecting the future, if you like. So when you say it comes later, do you let it sort of uh, filter into the market, and then if you know something like a weir runner first up, and you see there's money for it, you might add additional value, or even just intuitively sort of give it an extra tick in your mind. Or how do you go about doing it? Is it different each sort of variable? Yeah, so I mean, from a pre-race perspective, I'm trying to um, because we spend so much. So much of my form is is done in the post-race and in in you know, producing those ratings and trying to produce really accurate ratings. And as I said, I'm trying to eliminate the subjectivity at, at that point. Once you've got a really good set of objective ratings, I like to, the pre-race side of things, that's probably where I might be a little bit different to some, is I like a lot of that to be in the pre-race automated. So I think if you get a computer to automate your, your at least your primary assessment of, of races, you get that consistency, which you probably just... You're not going to get yourself just sort of using your intuition so much. So I'm rating races and then using that to automate a, a price line. And, and from there, I can sort of massage that price line, if you like, to to my to use my intuition because you don't want to sort of stray. You don't want to be uncomfortable with your, your assessments, I suppose, is the, the, right, the right phrase. So I'm sort of trying to take that, that sort of very objective manual, like automated price line and and then massage it. Something like a weir runner drifting is, um, yeah, I'm not going to get too worried about that. I, I don't think it's sort of, I mean, you, yeah, you, you're sort of going to see that. I think him specifically, Darren weir runner specifically. First up, I think you're probably not that, not that hot on a lot of his horses anyway. So it's probably if they're drifting in the betting, you, you'd like to think that that you'd already sort of predicted that to some extent. If market moves in the betting that were unpredicted and, and you're not sure why that's um probably yeah probably then you, you might think about shouldering arms on the race so i want to talk specifically about two variables the first one being tracks are they something that you can factor into a rating system or is that something you would have to this horse is good at this track for this reason or is not good at this track for this reason how do you go about dealing with that i suppose when you say reason that's that's very that's hard to sort of come to a, a real conclusion about that i suppose you, you look at a horse like grunt on the weekend who you know two caulfield runs were just okay he gets back to flemington where he won a group one in the past and and just explodes and, and wins another group one and it's very easy to say okay well grunt is several lengths better horse at flemington but it's hard to um it's hard to sort of quantify that exactly i think again it's not you're just going to measure the the post race and it's just going to be a coincidence that He's going to have high ratings at Flemington and maybe not so high ratings at Caulfield or, or something like that. But in the in the pre-race, it's sort of it's a variable, a very small variable. I wouldn't I wouldn't put too much weight into it, but um, I would think it's something that it, it's a variable in in sort of creating a price line, a small one, and probably not one that's going to be any different to the the betting market at large. I, I doubt there's really an edge in course form, if you like. Yeah, because it's always something you hear on sort of mainstream. Uh, content anyway you know oh, this horse is unbeaten at the track or certainly down the Flemington straight you'll often hear you know Coolmore Day or whatever that this horse is two from two down the straight but it might be a very good horse if it's running in a group one as a three-year-old and it's run against some ordinary horses a few months earlier at Flemington and, and of course it was going to win those races so it's hard to it's it's one of those things that always stands out to me it's always something that's brought up I mean wet tracks might be one of them that might be a whole different subject but for some reason you know the track's you know, the performance at a track is always something that's relied on as a 
reliable form factor. Yeah, and I'm sure there. I mean, I'm sure there is. Um, like, I'm sure there is some, you know, something behind the, the old saying "horses for courses." I'm I'm sure it means something, and I'm sure there is a. You know, I'm sure Grant does prefer Flemington to to Caulfield, but knowing exactly how much he prefers Flemington to Caulfield and and predicting what that will mean for him, in and his ratings profile is is a different beast altogether. And as I said, it's it's probably a, a small variable. I'm sure it's a small variable in a, in a lot of big teams' models, but I wouldn't think it's a, a key variable by any stretch. And and yeah, I think that the market would do a pretty good job of just sort of snuffing that out and, and sort of adjusting for that. And what about jockeys? If if someone's having a poor stretch, is that an objective variable you can quantify and factor in, or is that something that you have to sort of assess? Or even you know, Hugh Bowman when Winks is running doesn't want to um, necessarily get suspended for weeks down the road, or even you know get in too much trouble early on in the race day. Is that, is that something you can assess, or is that something you leave to uh, pre-race analysis? Yeah, I think that's another that's another pre-race thing. I mean, that's. If you know, we'll say Hugh Bowman is is riding poorly and, and he's not getting the best out of his horses. I mean, that'll bear out in in their ratings. They'll return lower ratings if if they're not getting the the chance to to run them. But I think again, it's it's probably one of those things where, as you say, it gets a lot of mainstream attention, but actually quantifying it is a, a pretty difficult task. And it's you know, you can get stuck chasing noise. I think on a lot of these sort of things. I mean, Hugh Bowman doesn't ride well when Winks is around. You know, that's that's all well and good until he comes out and rides four or five winners and, and you've marked all these horses down four or five rolls and yep. and done your money. I, I sort of think it's a, as I said, it's another one of those things where there, there could well be something to it, but I think if you chase that much noise, you, you're going to tie yourself in knots and, and end up in, you know, too far away from, from your, your sort of fundamentals, if you like. So for those that don't have the ability to curate a large database of information or you know, might be doing it part-time. Are there a couple of variables that stand out from your perspective that are worth delving into in order to help make a five- or ten-minute, you know, rating on a horse, let's say, if they're doing some quick analysis? Um, it's a good question. I, I suppose I'm I'm very privileged to, to be working at racing and sports where I have such deep sort of data, if you like, at, at my fingertips. I've sort of having to, having sort of five minutes and having to key onto just one variable is not something I've... Um, I'm fortunate enough not to have had to sort of worry about that sort of thing. I, I suppose, I mean, there is a lot of, um, if you're in a position where you don't have a lot of time to, to sort of, as you say, nurture a, a full database, there's, there's plenty of good stuff available and it's probably a good chance for me to get in a little plug there for, for racing and sports. Racing and sports has a, a really great free database online there that, that you can get pretty good access to. It's not going to be sort of, tailored for you we've got obviously a lot of users and you can't please everyone but it's it's going to give you a, a head start if you like there's there's freely available ratings there that are pretty good and, and they're going to give you a, a reasonable start i would imagine and, and then i think you know if you can take those those ratings and i think one of the the really simple things is to use ratings and and try and work on their relationship with with the sp so looking at sort of a, a prior expectation versus the the output if you like and so if you take a, a rating and, and sort of use it intertwine it a little bit with the csp for those runs you can sort, sort of start to to work towards coming towards a a rating that's meaningful in a predictive sense if you like so um you know i suppose what i'm saying is if you get you know two horses with a rating of say 100 and, and one of them was you know around 100 at even money and one of them ran 100 at 40 to one those ratings mean something different from a you know from a predictive sense so 
you can you know that's a pretty easy thing to do the sp is obviously widely available in, in form guides and if you can get sort of a, your hands on a, a reasonable set of ratings you can you can start to intertwine them and, and i think you'll you'll probably see yourself you know with a, with a pretty simple little model there have a, a bit of success so how do you convert ratings into prices or do you do that so you can assess you know the market yeah well i i have a I'm, as i said lucky enough to be at racing and sports where that sort of that first go for me is is all automated by the the computer and and there's some you know some algorithms there put together you know i i know the concepts but i'm lucky enough to have access to to smarter minds than mine that can sort of crunch the the maths on that sort of stuff and and on those sort of relationships as i said relationships between things like sp and and ratings and and sort of number of starts and ratings and and use that in a in a sort of mathematical predictive sense so you know i, I use that as a as a real starting point and and i don't like to stray too far from it as i said that a consistency that you get with a with a sort of automated price line sort of guarantees that you you do all that hard work sort of coming up with a, a good rating you don't want to sort of stuff it up with with the sort of pre-race assessment and by missing things and, and the computer just won't do that so take me through 30 minutes before a race you've got your prices it sounds like in your ratings and you've done uh, or the computer's done a lot of the work for you what are you looking for in that sort of period of time up until the jump are there things that are key components that you're always looking at and monitoring or is it depends on the race yeah, so to, to make sound judgments, I'll, I'll want to be prepared, I suppose, is the, the important thing. So 30 minutes before a race, um, you know, I'll, I'll want to know exactly sort of what my game plan is there. So I'll have a, a plan, a, sort of a betting plan, if you like, and an idea of, of which races I want to target from, from the morning. And, and, you know, on a Saturday, I'm, I'm sort of, I've got my eye on that from sort of two days out, if you like. So I'm sort of 30 minutes before a race, I'm, my prices are in, I've, I've sort of, I've got my sort of generated prices off the, the ratings, if you like, and I've, I've done my massaging by then. I've, I've added my little bit of flair, which which is hopefully sort of got them in, in the right space. And, and, yeah, I sort of know which races I'm, I'm looking to target. So I'm just monitoring prices like everyone else, Betfair and, and Dynamic Odds, what have you, and, and just looking for, you know, that, that edge you need, I suppose, to sort of pull the trigger. How far and wide are you going to gather information at that point? Are you looking at... Twitter, are you getting information from the yard perhaps or looking at the weather? Like what type of information are you deeming relevant? Yeah, I mean, I'm mostly, I'm in betting markets are what I'm, I'm looking at at that point. As I said, I've got a plan. I don't, unless something, you know, large has sort of happened weather-wise or, or, you know, there's something, you know, some genuine mail from the yard, if you like, I'm, I'm not wanting to sort of change my assessment at, at that point. And, you know, I've certainly got Twitter open because I suppose that's like the, the modern betting ring in a sense. I mean, People don't really go, not a lot anyway, go to the track to, to bet these days. So everyone's sort of at home on, on the computers in their bunkers, if you like, and, and Twitter's sort of the, the betting ring. So you see a lot of interesting stuff in there and a lot of fun stuff. And, and yeah, it's, a, it's sort of a, a good distraction in between races, actually. And, and as I said, yeah, there is there is information there. But I'm pretty set in stone by sort of 30 minutes before the race. It's, it's really just a matter of, of getting the, the price that I want. How flexible are you with what your prices have and, and what you're seeing? If you see something drastic, whether it's track bias or other things that people talk about, will you sit out for the rest of the day if that's the case or if there's a, a deluge and you're not quite sure if you've got the right ratings for a wetter track than you expected? Are you are you adjusting on the fly? Yeah, so I suppose so I won't make – I'll price races up the same on a heavy as I will on a good. I, I won't make a, a real – now maybe a slight intuitive one, but not a 
not a massive change. So if it really rained on the day and it's, it will come down to feel with me, if I sort of think, well, this is, you know, cyclonic at, at Flemington or something, you know, maybe it's a, a day just to sort of not play, if you like. But for the most part, I suppose I'll, I'll just grip my teeth and, and charge on in. Um, I think sort of it'll sort of look after itself in a sense. You know, you might back the old horse that completely doesn't handle it, but there'll be plenty that you, you didn't like that, that, you know, won't handle it as well. So I'm happy enough to sort of just just keep betting, if you like, in, through most of those. It's sort of one of those things where it doesn't really matter to me until it matters completely. Um, sort of, a, you know, it's... And track bias is a little bit the same. I think track bias is, you know, people are hunting for patterns with, with track bias, and I think we're way too quick to sort of screen bias, really. Um, and we're probably hunting for those little... You know, I understand that, you know, everyone's looking for their edge, and for some people, they're really good at spotting that stuff, and, and they're really good at exploiting it. But for me, I'm I'm not really, so I'm not going to spend huge chunks of time and energy sort of hunting for a half-length advantage, you know, via lanes on the track on the day or, or anything like that. So, again, track bias for me, it's it's not really relevant until it's completely relevant. And if there's, you know, a, a track that's just... Or wind is wind is probably the one, certainly in Melbourne, it's it's the one that, that causes the most havoc. And I suppose if it gets to a point where I think it's it's turning the races on the head, then, you know, maybe for me it, it's just a day to, to pack up shop completely. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Do you think jockeys and trainers and other participants utilize certain narratives that would have an impact on the race? And one example that comes to mind from back in the day when I was living in, in Melbourne was efficient in the derby when I, I, the wives' tales go that Lloyd told, I think it was Michael Rod, to stay on the fence as long as possible. And then he obviously did, and it turned out very well, especially for those that backed efficient in that race. But that I don't know the reason. Maybe it's public the reason, I'm not sure, but maybe it was because he thought the going was better on the inside. Maybe he wanted to save the horse for one last run because he wasn't sure as a three-year-old he would get the full... Who knows? But it seems like a lot of the narratives, there's always two sides to every single story. Yeah, and I suppose that's, again, where my my view on, on Jockey Australia's connections and, and the way they adapt to to those sort of through-the-day narratives is it's probably too volatile, too extreme for, for my thinking. I think sometimes, you know, wind, again, wind is, is the one in Melbourne that seems to be you know, in the headlines a lot of, of late. It's, it seems to always be blowing a gale down there. And I think sometimes it's it's sort of a little bit overplayed. So, um, again, it, it's sort of one of those things that doesn't matter until it matters a lot. And I think they start to act as if it's going to matter a lot before it really does. And then I think you see some jockeys who just sort of take that out of the equation and, and just ride their horse. I think the... What you see sometimes is, is, you know, owners' connections jockeys overthinking it to the point where they'll they'll sort of cost their horse, you know, several lengths tactically to save half a length against the wind. You know, I'll, we need cover from this wind, so I'll concede six eight lengths at the start to get this all important cover yeah, and yeah. and cost myself that six eight lengths to save, you know, what might be half a length or length, you know, at most, and and obviously that's you know that's dumb. So. You see a little bit of that. That's probably more of an issue for me than than the wind itself, because you know I'd, I'd like them just to, as I, as I was saying with with me and betting, I'd like them just to to grit their teeth and, and get stuck in, and then what will be will be. But I understand that that's probably not human nature. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then you said post race is the most important for you. Do you do anything unique, or are you just um, you know crunching all the numbers, so to speak, and trying to ensure you have all the right information ready for the next start? Yeah, that's, I mean, 
hard for me to say whether it's it's unique. I suspect sort of, but not entirely. It's it's you know we get we have a good system at, at racing and sports for getting that data in and, and managing it. And that's a large chunk of my week is is spent managing that that data at the big database. Obviously, we're we're covering twelve twelve racing jurisdictions around the world, so. There's a, a lot of data in there that sort of needs to be needs to be managed and and then yeah interpreted. But you know we've we've again got pretty good systems in place to sort of to sort of rate and assess those meetings pretty quickly. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low margin buy sell fixed odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join Betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So do you go back into the past and adjust different ratings based on what you've seen after more starts of a horse, for example? Yeah, absolutely, and particularly with with lightly raced horses. So when you're rating a race, those, those ratings, I mean, you're taking as many sort of data points, if you like, within that race to to sort of, you know, if you, the more data points you touch on, the, the closer to the truth you'll get. And I suppose when you get those lightly raced horses, you don't have quite so many points of reference, if you like, and... And as we see more of them, we get more and more points of reference. So, yeah, it's a good idea to, to go back and, and to sort of make adjustments. You know, those, those ratings, particularly for young horses, have have an error margin for, for sure, and, and you can sort of find that down with, with more information. So we'll do that for sure. And then we use those races, obviously, as a, as a reference point for the, the following seasons as well. So it's important that we have them right so we've got strong references for the, for the future as well. Yeah, I don't know that that many people maybe don't have the time or the ability to go and do that but if you think a, a race is a hot form race and the first five or six out of that race will be strongly contesting their next start or should be well in the market and then it turns out it wasn't it obviously has a multiple effect moving forward if you don't adjust it yeah absolutely right it'll have a knock-on effect and i mean part of the the ratings process is not just times and, and sectionals it's also that collateral form so if you've got horses, you know, and races rated too high and, and horses coming out of those races that are incorrectly rated, you have a, you know, a skewed prior, if you like, going into the rating the, the next race, you have a skewed range of, of possible values for that horse going forward. So you need to, you need to make sure you go and, and get those as close to right as you can for sure, because yeah, it does have that, that knock on effect. And, and if you let that go unchecked, obviously knock on onto knock on and, and you'll find yourself with some exponential trouble. Speaking more generally about the industry, do you find that it's healthy and it's moving forward and it's on a good path, good trajectory, or is it uh, the alternative, or is it somewhere in the middle? There's a lot of discussion about how things need to be or should be heading or aren't heading or are heading. What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, my answer is always going to be somewhere in the middle. I probably don't have enough information to, to you know speak with huge authority on it, but I think there are certainly parts of the industry that are good. I think there are parts of the industry that are certainly going along much better than than the sort of public would the racing public if you like would would think i think the sport's pretty well covered there's always room for improvement of course but i think it does a reasonable job of sort of projecting itself out there it's got free-to-air coverage in australia and through its newspaper attention and, and online it's, it's got pretty good coverage and i think it's it's going okay there's always room for improvement of course i'd, I'd love to see racing puff its chest out a, a little bit more and, and be a little bit more confident about itself i think you know, I'm obviously a, a hard fan of of racing, and, and you know, I'd, I'd like to see racing be more confident in itself and and what it's about. I'd like to see it be more confident in the betting side of the, the game. And you know, you only have to look at the success of corporate bookmakers to know that any society is as sort of averse to the 
the betting game as, as maybe racing you know, portrays it. You know, I sometimes feel like racing's a little bit shy in sort of promoting itself down those lines, but it's a it's a great game. It's a it's a fun game, and it's a game you know beats the hell out of Sudoku. And, and I would imagine that a lot of people feel the same way. And I'd, I'd like to see racing certainly promoting that. Are there any other areas for you that would be you know valuable for them to add? And you know, like you said, there's free to wear vision. You know, there's barrier trial vision in many respects. There's times. There's different form outlets you can get access to. There's bookmakers. There's totes. There's exchanges. There's a lot of information online. There's also a lot of noise, which is, is good and bad. But are there other things that you could point to and say, look, this would be a great thing to have in you know 2018 and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the obvious one as a, as a puncher in Victoria is, is sort of more official trials and, and things like that. And for me, it's not even a case of you know, we've got good vision now, but but there's always you know demand for more and, and for for more official trials and, and that sort of thing and less sort of unseen runners at, at the races. That's always a big one. And, so you talk about noise. For, for me, the more information that, that's out in the, the marketplace, the better. And it's not even necessarily that I want it or that I want to use it. I'm, I'm not going to be, a, a, you know, I'm not going to be trawling through jump outs necessarily. That's just not my go. But I want other people to be trawling through jump outs and, and betting on them. And I want other people to have access to, to sectional times so they can interpret them their way. And, uh, you know, because I want to bet against those people as well. So I think there's, you know, you want information out there, not just for yourself, but for the, for the health of the whole betting market. And something, to, you know, I suppose we're all in this because we think we're we're the best at interpreting it, and I want other people to have, you know, that little bit of information as well, so they're more confident to, you know, to be on the other side of the bet, if you like. I, so I started doing sort of quick fire or word association questions at the end of podcasts, as of basically now. So before we get into that i've got a few that i'll fire out for you i wanted to ask about racing and sports i mean we touched on a little bit before but what what's the sort of competitive edge for you guys and what you're up to you mentioned gary before and i know you've got a pretty good team there what's something that's uh, different tools that are useful for punters if they haven't been on there extensively already yeah good timing because we've, we've just launched our, our new site which is hopefully a, a great tool for, for punters there with you know a lot of Good quality form, but also a, a lot of interactivity with with that form. We've got the you know the sort of the old Don Scott worksheets, if you like. They're still they're still a great tool. That was sort of what I've first started off those the sort of cold nights at the at the bookies there, finding my feet on on the English races was using Don Scott worksheets on on racing and sports. They're a great way to price up races, and and you can still use them you know successfully. And as I said, they're all interactive. So the speed maps and and a few other things on the website there. So I think the the interactive form that we have there, and then hopefully it's, let's say we've got a new website now, racingandsports.com, and hopefully it's um it's a, a pretty clean website and a pretty intuitive website, easy website for people to use. And you know, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm pretty upbeat about it and think that people can, you know, people really enjoy it. Awesome. Everyone should go and check it out. So before we finish up, I'll just fire a few questions and words at you and first thing that comes to mind you can take 30 seconds or three minutes whatever you prefer does that sound good yeah i don't it won't make the great podcasting if i take three minutes (laughs) (laughs) so who's the best horse outside of the normal answers of winks and black caviar and Maccabi diva uh the best horse i so you think was my my local favorite and i still think what he did overseas is is massively undersold i thought he was he was everything about racing for me he was you know, he was an you know an athletic rock star. He looked fantastic, and and he you know he won plenty of races and and conquered plenty of worlds, and then took everything on as well. So you know, he was he was outstanding. So so you think sort of you know he's my champ. What do you think the racing industry will be like after Winks retires? Um, 
the first thing that popped into my head was better, but that's probably a little bit unfair. <laughs> I mean, she's fantastic, obviously. and Better prices. So, you know, she, she sort of crawls a few great betting races there, doesn't she? So that was the first thing that popped into my head was better, even though I'd, you know, I don't want to be seen as a, a wink hater. I think she's awesome, but, but, you know, she's obviously, you know, for the, the betting side of the game, she's uh, the Cox Plate this year would be such a hot betting heat if, if not for the tens on favourite that's just going to whip them all. So that's that's probably the, the first thing that sprung to mind. Do you remember your first quaddy win? I do, but it was a treble back in the days. I was um, I was at Canberra Racecourse with the old man. I remember getting, gee, I reckon it was something like 80 to 100 bucks, and I was absolutely pumped. And I think Tante Lane won the Rose Hill Guineas, so I'm not sure what year that was. I'm not good, I'm good at old races. I'm not good at years, but I'm pretty sure Tante Lane won the Rose Hill Guineas, and I, I jagged the treble that day. Beautiful. One underrated horse for the upcoming Spring Carnival, Melbourne or Sydney? Um, underrated horse. Uh, a horse I like from Saturday is a horse called Good and Fast for, for David Hayes. He was behind Brutal, and I think Brutal was you know terrific. He dug in and, and did a great job. But I thought Good and Fast was was sneaky good in in behind him there, and, and he'll go he'll go on for that. And then the winner of the last on Saturday as well, Fury, and he's um he's a star in the making. So I think Saturday can can you know throw up a pretty a couple of pretty handy ones there. Gay Waterhouse in her prime, Chris Waller in his prime. Who would you prefer to train uh, any horse? Ooh, um, I'll say Gay runs on the board and and longevity. I suppose, I mean, geez, Chris is starting to get into the, the longevity stakes as well, isn't he? But I suppose time is the, the great tester of all of these, and, and she's still there, and she's still, she's still hard to beat whenever she gets a good one. So I'll say Gay. You own the favourite in the Doncaster, and you've got to pick J-Mac or Bowman. Who are you putting on the horse? J-Mac, for sure. I mean, it's not a knock on Hugh Bowman, who's a, a really good jockey, but I think I think James McDonald, when he when he gets a little bit of continuity back and, and back riding, I think he you know he could just about make a case he might be the most talented jockey in the world. So I'll say J-Mac for sure. Do horses retire too early? Um, I think it's a, I think we have more of an issue with losing horses to Hong Kong than than the breeding barn in truth. We lose a couple of stars for sure. I mean, I was a little dirty when they retired Flying Artie because I was convinced he was a, a really good horse in the making and we never got to see the best of him and then there are several like him, I suppose. But I think we lose the, we're losing a lot of horses to Hong Kong and, and that's where you're sort of, you're losing the guts of the, the guts of the race there, if, if you like. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not as, um, I'm not stamping my foot about that quite as much as, as maybe some. Would you prefer to own the winner of an ARC or the Caulfield Cup? Uh, the ARC for me. I'd, I'd both, but I'd, I'd love to win the ARC. That'd be, I think that'd be it. I think that'd be the, the pinnacle race for me anywhere on the, on the planet. I'd, I'd like, you know, obviously to own an ARC winner. You know, I get to take him home as well, right? So I've got, I've got plenty more good things in store as well. No doubt. Last one for you, Tom Melbourne. He's fantastic. I think, <laughs> I mean, I feel a little bit sorry for him that he hasn't won, but he, you know, he gets a massive tick for consistency, doesn't he? And I think he, I think where he gets a little knocked for for maybe turning it up, I think that's just how good he is. I think he might be genuine, that he's genuinely at a, a, you know, he sort of suffers for being so honest. Perhaps he puts himself in great positions to to run second. It's, it's not easy to run second in those good races. So yeah, I think he's a he's a good boss. He's probably a, you know, he's probably a little harshly dealt with. Yeah, is it is it one of those narrative things that it's just kind of a weird random sample that he just has a lot of seconds and it might just be luck more than anything or randomness? Yeah, I think if you're good to a certain level, like he's 
he's good, like on a time form scale, I think he's 116 or something like that. That's not quite good enough to, to beat a horse like coming through. He's 121, but it's it's good enough to beat most horses, and that's where he gets himself into those winning positions, if you like. He gets, he's good enough to get himself in the finish of all these races, but not good enough perhaps to, to win them all the time. And he's so genuine that he's that he's always you know, put, you know running up to something like his mark and, and getting himself in the finish. So there's nothing admirable about that. So that's the end of this little segment. I don't know how well that went. We'll see what the feedback's like. But before I let you go, I wanted to ask, when, you, when you're consuming different content around horse racing or, or betting or, or not at all in that area if you're not interested in that in terms of public content, but what, what sort of attracts your eye or what do you read or listen to or watch when you're uh, in that area? Um, so I read a lot, but uh, not necessarily about horse racing, but I am... Um you know, I mean, the podcast here is, is pretty great. I've, I've listened to half a dozen of, of these in, in the past, and and podcasts, I suppose, are you know, I walk the dog, throw the throw the earphones in, and that's a pretty easy way to sort of get a little bit of you know. I mean, on here you've got stories like you know with with different pundits and things like that, and I listen to um, it's called RSN's Correct Weight for just a a recap of, of the day before, which is, you know, got Dan Lester and, and what have you on and they do a, a pretty good job recapping the day before, which is, you know, good good background noise for a for a dog walk for sure. Awesome. Adam, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate uh you coming on to the podcast and having a chat and good luck with the upcoming spring carnival. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jake.